Welcome to Meanwhile at the Museum, the official Cincinnati Museum Center podcast, where we take you behind the scenes, into the collections, and all the places where museum visitors don't normally get to go. I'm Cody Hefner, Vice President of Marketing and Communications here at Cincinnati Museum Center. I have the amazing job to take the stories inside the museum and share those with the public. And a lot of those stories come from the real-life superheroes working here in the Hall of Justice That's right. Union Terminal, the home of Cincinnati Museum Center, was the original inspiration for the Hall of Justice from the 1970s Super Friends cartoons, hence the name, Meanwhile, at the Museum. Throughout the podcast, we're going to introduce you to some of the superheroes that work here at the Hall of Justice and to the kindly citizens who have welcomed this museum into their hearts, into their memories, and into the community. All right, I'm here with Erica Schultz, who, according to your business cards and according to your emails, you are exhibition fabricator. That's correct. Um, I'm also considered the shop manager, so it means that in addition to fabricating all the exhibits, it's my responsibility to keep the tools maintained, um, keep materials stocked, make sure that the shop and everything in it is functioning properly. So there, there's a theme at Cincinnati Museum Center. I don't know if you picked up on it, but you either know what someone's job title is, but you have no idea what they do, or you know what they do, but you have no idea what their job title is. Absolutely. And me, for you, I essentially, yeah, I get what Erica does. I have a pretty good grasp on that. I have no idea what her title is. I had to ask you what your title was, um, which feels very impersonal now that I'm saying it. I'm just exposing myself (laughs) right now. Sure, sure. I agree that the titles don't always encompass everything that a person's responsible for here. And I kind of like the versatility, to be honest with you. I don't like being pigeonholed to just what my business card says. I feel like I'm a little more versatile than that. When I I'm going to I'm going to paint a picture. When I think of Erica, which Schultz, are you related to the Peanuts guy? No, he spells it differently. Oh, but well. that, I've been asked that question at least 4,000 times in my life. So. Have you? <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite Peanuts character? Or you just um, oh, you Pig shut Pen, it down? For sure, Pigpen. <laughs> my last name is Hefner, so I think I have it worse. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so when I think of you, I think of two things come to mind immediately. One, you're always smiling anytime I've ever seen you. And two, you always have what I would call a utility belt. Like, you've always got stuff around your waist. It makes it a lot easier when your tools are attached to you. What, do you, what are your go-tos? What are you never without? Well, looking at myself right now, I feel kind of insufficiently dressed. Um, I'd say definitely a tape measure. Um, no good fabricator should be caught dead without one. A pencil, which normally there's three or four sticking out of my hair because, again, Easiest place to access them, you know, kind of like Flo from Flo's Diner. Um, And a knife, a utility knife. I think those are things that at least 12 times a day I'm reaching for. That's in case you're walking through a rough part of the museum. Exactly. There there are some tough locations. Exactly. Where so uh, tape measure? Where do you stand on the metric system? Oh, I wish we could use it. It's so simple. It's so simple. But then again. Learning how to count by 12s has been really fun for me. <laughs> you know what's interesting in talking about the metric system is the only way, the only place it really shows up in America is pop. 
is two liters. Oh, sure. Which is so odd In that. Liquids. Yeah. Do you call it pop or do you call it soda? We always called it pop growing up yeah. here, but I've adapted to calling it soda pop. Oh, <laughs> being inclusive. Yeah, yes. you're gonna <laughs> really hedging your bets. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> metric system aside, explain what you do. What what your day to day, week to week looks like. Um, what does an exhibition fabricator do? Sure. Um, I'd say if we go back to step one. Generally, we are given uh, either a detailed set of plans, designs, drawings, or even a, sort of a general idea from the designers, from um, people in collections who are deciding really how they want to represent the artifacts we have, how they want to tell the story. Um, and so it's our job to take their two-dimensional renderings, images, and make those 3D. Um, so it could really be any number of skills needed and utilized for those projects. Um, carpentry. So we build a lot of the furniture that you'll see out on the floor. Um, cabinets in which to house live animals or specimen drawers, things like that. Um, other days it's welding. So currently we're working on uh, the Ordovician Gallery, which has over 400 fossil specimens in the exhibit. So it's my job to make all the mounts that will hold these in their cabinets. Um, some of them are freestanding, so steel armatures that have to be welded and fabricated you know, to hold those in place. Um, but it's a lot of problem solving as well and, and kind of reinventing the wheel sometimes to, to create things um, that A, help to tell the story and B, are visually pleasing. Um, they are safe because we know children, even though they're discouraged, like to climb on things and beat our, beat our stuff up. Um, so other days it's sculpting, it's painting, it's, uh, it's patching drywall holes. Some days it's not so glamorous. Um, but we're also responsible for setting up the temporary galleries, you know, when we have exhibits coming through here for only a few months at a time. And, and that's the thing that I think a lot of people may not realize or may not think about. It's when when you're putting an exhibit together, first off, you have to put that together. It's not like museums are built with like pre-manufactured exhibits that just like pop up. You think of like a cartoon where you like pull a ribbon and it just springs together. Oh, wouldn't that be great? It, it would be nice. In every exhibit that I've ever heard that's like, oh, it's really easy to set up. Everything like just goes together oh, in a snap. Yeah is never the case. Someone has to build those exhibits and you're there's not a catalog where you just open it up and say I need uh I need a case for for 23 or division fossils or or something like that. Right. There are some things that you can buy or order that are prefabricated but for the most part everything needs to be custom built. That's for, right. For for galleries, right? That's right. And and this building in particular uh, provides a lot of challenges for us because even when you look across the floor at what seems to be a quote-unquote flat surface, it never is. Um, you have to remember that a lot of our gallery spaces were traversed by vehicles when this building was a train station. So there are wheel ruts that you can't really see, but when you go to set a piece of furniture on them, you'll find that the floor is at a level in that spot by three or four inches because of those wheel ruts or because of 
just the natural slope of the floor. So See, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, uh, if anyone knows the history of Union Terminal, where the history and the science museums are, um, there are three levels, and they were all essentially ramps into the building that would come into the building and go underneath, so they sloped down. And so I was thinking, yes, everything kind of grades down, but the wheel ruts... It, as soon as you said that, I thought, of course, that makes mm-hmm. so much sense. And again, it's something with the carpet there and with lots of pieces in the gallery. You don't necessarily see it looking across it. But when you get down there and actually try and take a level measurement off that floor, it looks like a wave. And that's, yeah. And so that's mm-hmm. the like the starting point of the intricacies in the galleries. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other galleries and spaces that were never finished when Union Terminal was used as a train station. It, it was back of house stuff. It was dirt floor. I remember there was a, a long period where we had an area called um, dirt storage. It's still called dirt storage. Is it? Even, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I first started, I'm like, dirt storage? Mm-hmm. Like, Why surely are we we're not, dirt? <laughs> yeah, surely we're not storing dirt. Um, but it, it's, it's just this building that was utilitarian when it was built, um, and I and so in my mind I'm like dirt storage. What in a museum are we possibly storing in dirt storage? It's like oh, there's extra file cabinets, extra, extra stuff. A lot of it was extra, um, you know, office furniture and things like that. There were no artifacts, nothing. Uh, there was going to be damaged, anything like that. But it was genuinely dirt storage. And I remember during the restoration of the building between 2016 and 2018, that was a big part of it. Of we're paving dirt storage. We're pouring concrete. It's going to take this many truckloads of concrete. And, and me, the marketing guy, how many truckloads exactly? Well, you can't get a truck down here. So, uh, well, how many wheelbarrows? And how, <laughs> so what size are the wheelbarrows? And so I'm doing math to try to like make this number that people are going to care about. <laughs> and like, I have no idea how many cubic feet uh, a wheelbarrow holds or why that's interesting. But uh, nevertheless, the, there are spaces like that that are being created for either future gallery use um, or just kind of more finesse storage space. So you are, uh, you're navigating things that were not intended to be used for galleries and now you are adapting them for that. Exactly. Um, So not only do the floors cause us issues, um, the ceilings do as well because all of the HVAC, plumbing, uh, electric, all those things that normally run through a ceiling, um, oftentimes you would have drop ceilings in those areas. There's no way to cover or avoid any of the internal... All the guts and the, the, yeah, the and so, arteries and veins of, yeah, of the building. Yeah, so when it comes to um, installation and connecting things to the building, because it's a historic building there are certain things we're not allowed to do. So we're not allowed to anchor into any of the walls on those ramps um, and disturb any of that original tile. There are certain areas of the floor we're not permitted to put anchors in um, as protection for the historic building. But also up above, things often have to be cabled, tall walls that you don't want falling over on people often have to be cabled to the ceiling. All those pipes and vent stacks and all that create an issue when where that's concerned we've had to build walls where the top of it looks like a crazy key or something because of all the notches that you have to go around um so those provide challenges as well not just 
fabricating the pieces that are going in there, but actually installing the pieces and how they can connect or can't connect to the building. And so you are all essentially a, a team of MacGyvers, right? Because you're, uh, yeah, you're just figuring that. it sure. out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, reinventing the wheel sometimes. Sure. So it, you mentioned um, you kind of a host of things within your your job function. Mm-hmm. Which is your favorite? Everyone has, you know, 12 things that they do in any given day, but there's something that they're they get excited about. What's or at least today, what's the thing that you get most excited about? Yeah, I mean, the truth is I really love what I do and I also have an extreme obsession for history. Um, I was a history student in college, but it it wasn't active enough for me. I'm a person that needs to be hands-on all the time. Uh, I don't do idle very well. So this is a great place and a great way to incorporate my love of history and my obsession for building things and creating things. So anytime I get to take somebody's two-dimensional rendering and flesh that out in real life is exciting for me. Um, Because sometimes that's finding new materials that will... Um, that are safe, that are effective, um, and that will last, and gaining new skills along the way because of that. So learning new epoxies and new adhesives and things. But um, welding I love so much because melting metal and, and creating these structures that can support mass amounts of weight is fun for me. I don't know. And like Pigpen being my favorite uh, Peanuts character, I love getting dirty. I love being tired and dirty at the end of the day and have something to show for my effort, something tangible, you know, where I can say, look what I did. Oftentimes other people in the building will know I've been welding because of the black streaks all over my face that I'm unaware of. And, you know, oh, I've been welding today? Yes, how can you tell, you know? Um, But I do. I I like the challenge of taking somebody's vision and having the freedom to sort of, my way, bringing that to life. And so are you a... Uh, a full mask welder or do you use the the little goggles like the little iron man goggles no i'm not that cool no um (laughs) i like the full face helmets and and now technology has given us auto darkening shields so it used to be you used to see the the guys with the helmet up yeah and they'd get ready then they do the nod that flips the thing down yeah which is pretty cool it's pretty cool but it's also not the easiest way to weld because I'm, if I'm, like, aimed at something, then I do this, my hand may move, now I'm off the mark, and I can't see it again. So the auto-darkening helmet, you can be right on the thing, and it goes black the minute you hit the trigger. So I can actually see everything I'm doing up until the split second where I hit that trigger, and it darkens for me. That is amazing. It is amazing, is, and it makes things so much easier. Do you know, is our workers' comp policy strong enough that I could come weld something? That's a question for Jill. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll come back to yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll come back to that. It, that's the other fun thing is lots of people around the building are always angling for ways to come and play with our tools, which I don't blame them. I think it's one of the most fun places in the building. But, I agree. And we don't get any visitors. Nobody ever comes through to go, hey, what are you guys doing down here today? How's it going? I so, always, so I always feel guilty when I when I walk in because I know you all are always so busy. You're always trying to get something done. And I'm just 
like a curious little kid. Uh, but I love visiting the shop. Number one, it smells like sawdust, which is wonderful. Like it smells like fresh lumber, which is always amazing. Some days. Some days it smells like epoxy resin or burnt metal. Or, those, are, those are good, too, you know. though. Like I don't mind. Are, yeah, I don't mind. <laughs> in the the box of crayons of scents, ooh, we should make uh, – we should see if we can get a workshop box of crayons. Like, what colors wow. epoxy? Well, it all depends. It can come in many colors. See? Th- look. Yeah. That's like six crayons taken care of. I like this. We could do I a like box of 16 like Are that. they scented? They should be. They should be. I oh. mean, how else do you get kids to eat crayons? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love going to the shop. It's it's really cool. It's always, um, it's very humbling in a way uh, because it's just this entire, I don't know, how many rooms is the shop? Three, four rooms? But yeah. it's, it's this entire space of just skill sets that, so many people cannot replicate. The cogs aren't interchangeable. Um, and just the diversity of talent and skill in there is is so cool. And everyone's always, as you said, you, you love visitors. So everyone's always so welcoming. I've never been kicked out of the workshop. I've never been, I've never shown up with a camera crew or someone else and said, hey, can we cover this? Can we talk about this? Can we show this? And people are like, nope, get out, don't do it. Uh, everyone's very proud of what they do. And then super humble when they talk about it. But the more they talk about it, the like more incredible they are. Wow. Uh, so it's, it's, I agree. It's one of the, it's one of my favorite places um, across both buildings here and, and at the Geyer Center, which wow. is Geyer Center is where we have all of our yeah, stuff. That's a great it's all the place. collections and stuff. It's very cool. But the workshop is, uh, it's it's special. Well, I I appreciate hearing that because sometimes we feel like. The bad kids in the basement, or yeah. the forgotten children down in the corner. No one ever comes to see us. We're just a bunch of dirty tradies hanging out in the basement, you know. So it's nice for us to get a little recognition. People come through and see what we're doing and see that these things don't just appear out on the exhibits floor. There are there are people working really hard. And while I know it's a it's a complimentary term. Whenever people say, this is where all the magic happens. I wish it was magic because that would make our job so much easier. But the truth is it's a lot of people working really hard and showing off their skills to bring the story together and promote education, promote all the learning that we're trying to do here. Um, And I appreciate the recognition because sometimes we do feel a little forgotten. Well, you know, there there are Disney has their Imagineers. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and we have our exhibits team mm-hmm. and I mean, even pilots want to be astronauts. So sure. like, that's, that's where we're at Sure. right, right now. And when someone visits a, an exhibit, they're sort of intentionally not supposed to be looking at the furniture and, and the casework and everything. They're, they're looking at the objects and the artifacts, but it is so fascinating. You know, we've done exhibit previews and stuff like that. People are like, well, there are going to be ladders and toolboxes out. I'm like, that's great. Show it. Show people the process. Show them the nuts and bolts that goes into it. Uh, and we don't always get the chance to do that, but we're very, um, we're very lucky, number one, to have a team that's able to do that because so many museums farm that out. Mm-hmm. Um, they just don't have that skill set in their own organization, which we do. Um, but then the fact that we're able to to find moments where we can document that and film that and kind of share that with people 
um, I mean, if you if you turn on any streaming service, any TV station, like there's always how it's made and right. you know, big builds, things like people want to see the progress and and how things come together. Uh, it's, it's so I think it'd be fascinating, um, and I think our our legal team would freak out <laughs> to do tours through the workshop to talk about it. Um, and to show what what actually happens, because it, you're you're right, it is this incredible undertaking. Well, let me first take the opportunity to invite you, camera or no camera, you or anyone else here, to come through the shop anytime. Um, if it's not a good time, we'll tell you. We're not shy people, so we'll throw you out if we need to. Um, but secondly. I will ask for your help in pursuing this with legal, um, this tour thing, because I've given a few talks um, to some STEM groups from an all-girls high school that come through, and they're they're coming for a behind-the-scenes tour. And so it's been really fun to talk to them and explain to them what I do and how I got here, what my background is. But I think it would really hit home if they could see the shop and they could see some of this work in progress as opposed to me just telling them about it. Um, and I know that's a legal nightmare as far as liability is concerned. Um, but whatever waiver we need to get parents to sign, let's do it because I think it would benefit some of these people a lot to see my words in action, to, to actually see what I'm talking about and be able to maybe visualize themselves being in a place like that. Because I think you could come to a job like mine in non-traditional ways. And so I think as far as STEM goes, I use science. I use technology, engineering, and math every day to do what I do. Um, and I think it'd be fun for people to kind of think, wow, this is a different application for some of these processes than I would have ever considered and it's creative and it's fun and we love it and I love showing it off to people I'm proud of what I do I'm proud of what this building represents and all the things we're putting into it and so I welcome the opportunity to have tour groups through and to have people come and see what we actually do and I promise I won't be welding at the time we won't be running any heavy equipment but Please come and see us. The STEM portion is, is very interesting. Number one, it makes me think of my dad growing up. Um, you know, he'd be working on something and write measurements on, on a piece of wood. You know, 12, 12 and one eighths plus uh, four and three three fourths, and he would add that up. Boom, and know what he needs to do. But if I ever asked him for help on my math homework or something, <laughs> right. he'd be like, "Oh, I can't do that." I'm like, "You're adding mm -hmm. fractions, mm -hmm. like on a." scrap piece yeah. of wood and yeah. you're nailing it it's mm -hmm. insane so yeah there's a ton of stem that goes into it but you said your background's in history so what was my educational background yeah so walk us walk us through erica's journey sure to cincinnati museum center your you know your background your education your other your other jobs how'd you get here well um i'll start with the beginning i guess instead of backtracking from how I got here. Um, I was always, like I said, a, a creative kid, playing with stuff all the time, uh, tools in the garage when I wasn't supposed to, any kind of material I could make something else out of, I'd get my hands on and I'd do it. But I never thought that art, quote unquote, was a viable 
job. I'm always thinking of the starving artist sales, you know, with the oil paintings above the couch. Did you get that from your parents or your parents like, hey, figure out something real to do? No, I don't think so. Um, Because I I remember I when I told my dad I was I was going to study history in college. That was such a shocking moment for him that to this day he can tell me where he was when I called him and (laughs) told him. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, wow. Thanks for being supportive, Dad. Yes. Uh, Thanks a lot. (laughs) But all right, so you didn't. That's not where you. No, was that's from. okay. Um, but after, after a few years in college, like I said, it history wasn't active enough for me. I loved the learning, I loved the storytelling, but I wasn't hands on, and that bothered me. So, what I, what type of history were you most interested in? Did you gravitate towards? Um, medieval English history. Okay. Oh yeah, I'm I'm a big fan. <laughs> or I should say. Northern European medieval history, all-encompassing, mainly the British Isles, but that's okay. Anyway. <laughs> that's fascinating. All right, we, we'll come back to I'm that. I'm kind of a nerd, sure. Um, but I took some time off in college because, again, I didn't feel like I was getting what I needed to fulfill me emotionally, mentally. Um, so waiting tables, bartending, you know, and kind of always had a love of architecture and especially man's ability to create some of the most amazing buildings you've ever seen without the help of power tools and modern equipment. That's always fascinated me. So again, building, building, building was always in my, in my brain. Um, and I, I had a, a coworker who had on a lunch break one day just said, what do you want to do with your life? I can say, I want to build stuff. I want to be a carpenter. But I can't find anybody to give a little girl with no experience a job like that. you know. And he kind of said, well, hey, my cousin's got his own carpentry firm. You should give him a call. And I thought, sure, he's going to blow me off like everybody else. Thanks for the recommendation. Well, this guy ended up calling me two weeks later and said, I got a guy leaving. Whatever you're willing to learn, I'm willing to teach you. That was the opportunity I needed. That was it. Um Showed up on the job site that day, had never met any of these guys. They were incredibly welcoming and, again, ready to teach me anything I was willing to learn. Luckily for me, that was first day of demolition on the job. So Brian was his name, hands me a sledgehammer, says, see that wall over there? Yeah. Take it out. Really? Just take it out? Nothing I need to know? Have fun. Go at it. Or I had a blast, you know. But at the end of, of the course, day, yeah. I came home. I was more tired, more filthy than I'd ever been in my life. I lived with five other girls that were going to Xavier at the time. I collapsed on the living room floor, and they looked at me and thought, oh, you poor child, you know what? And I said, listen, I got to look at hot guys, play with power tools, and tear stuff up all day. Greatest day of my life. Can't <laughs> wait to go back, you know. And it was just really the fact that somebody had given me an opportunity to try this out and and to really see if all these things I'd been dreaming about and obsessing about were really true and were real for me. And they were. Uh, so ever since then, that was 1997, uh, I have been actively working in the trades in one way or another. So started in, in carpentry and in construction, and that company actually specialized in historic rehab. 
So I've had the opportunity to work on um, buildings like City Hall, Memorial Hall, a um, couple of the Wiedemann mansions. So again, incorporating my love of history very fitting, yeah. with my artistic abilities and my need to create something. Um, have worked for a couple different companies over the years. And like you said, with you're not nailed down to just your job title. Yes, I started as a carpenter, but in 27 plus years of working on homes and buildings, um, you, you kind of have to gain other skills. You need plaster skills. You need masonry skills, um, finish work, all kinds of that. So I've grown and adapted just through hands-on experience over the years. And then about 10 years ago or so, um, I decided I needed another tool in my belt and I wanted to get into welding. Um, so I actually enrolled in Scarlet Oaks adult certification welding program. It was pretty intense. Um, it was 10 months, essentially two years worth of schooling condensed to 10 months. So I was, I was building, doing construction all day and then five hours a night four nights a week going up and welding in the shop and and learning really intense but also broadened my abilities and and made me a more versatile worker because now I have the skills to play with metal where I didn't before that's super exciting that is exciting yeah so um in 2018, I guess, right as construction was being wrapped up here on the renovation, my brother-in-law was working on the temporary crew at the time and said, hey, they're looking for people here. You know, you ought to apply. So I did, and maybe six months had gone by before I ever got a call. But as soon as Chris Novi called me, you know, we talked on the phone for like an hour that first day, and I knew this was a really exciting opportunity. Granted, it was a part on the temporary crew, um, but I think luckily my skills, my capabilities sort of put me out in front of other people who weren't able to weld, who weren't able to actually build things or do finish work on stuff. So when it came time for a permanent person in the position I am now, Luckily, I was called up for that. So I've been here since 2018 in the position I'm in now for about two years. Oh, wow. You mentioned your, your toolkit. Uh, working for a nonprofit, it, you, there's, not the, there's not the capacity to have someone who hyper-specializes in something. It's like a baseball team. Mm-hmm. You cannot carry a player who hits against left-handed pitchers at night on the <laughs> West Coast. Like, you need utility right. players. You need someone who can play all you know all four infield positions who can hit both sides of the plate and that's that's the skill set that you have is that you can do it all essentially and you mentioned the group when you first got into carpentry and the guys were were very welcoming one of the things that always stands out to me is the camaraderie among the exhibits team is you walk into the workshop it is a different culture you're in a different space that is just so vastly different from any other office space you walk into. Uh, there's always music going. There, it's <laughs> it, everyone's talking very loud because you're trying to talk over machines you're and equipment. Right. Um, and it's like if 
someone hears a little commotion. I mean, the times that I've been down there, and if I've been talking to someone and someone hears, oh, there's a conversation going on, people just kind of pop out of the woodwork to to be a part of it. It is such a welcoming um, culture and environment among that team that, you know, as someone who's not on that team, who's on the outside, it's you're kind of envious of it because it is Aww. so uh, it is so close knit. And you mentioned Chris Novi, uh, and it, we can name drop on the on this podcast because oh, right. we'll Sorry. talk we'll talk <laughs> we'll talk to them eventually anyway. But you know, Chris Novi and and Dave might it it's fascinating to think if these if people on the exhibits team wore little stripes or badges for all the exhibits that they've worked on, like oh, people would idea. be blown away because Dave might is oh. so unassuming. Chris is so I unassuming, in. You're, you you get into a conversation. They say, it, I remember this one time talking to Dave, and he said, yeah, I I sculpted the, the wolves in the Ice Age Trail, uh, and I used a dental tool to do every individual strand of fur. I'm like, mm-hmm. that's insane. That why? Insane. Like, should we put that on a plaque somewhere? Does everyone need to know this? Dave, why aren't you just walking into meetings mm-hmm. telling people this? This stuff mm-hmm. is fascinating. But for all of you, it's just... All right, well, it's Tuesday. Here's what we're getting into today. Yeah, I, for the most part. And first of all, thank you. I, I take that as a compliment very much because we all, we do love it down there. And it's, I think we're in that mood and we're smiling because what we do is fun. You I have mean, a disco ball down there. We do. That's for sparkle parties, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into that on a, on a later podcast. Uh, <laughs> no, but conversely, for how much fun we're having in the shop there are a lot of heartbreaking moments, especially you mentioned Dave Might and how hard he works um, with the taxidermy and with the sculpture that in places around the museum, especially Ice Age, um, because of people, the public's lack of respect, um, a lot of what he does gets damaged and damaged in a way that can't be repaired. So most people walking by and they you know, somebody kicks something and breaks a wing off of a a duck that's on the ground there. What they don't realize is that wasn't just a model that we bought at the store and stuck out on the floor. Dave spent a month creating that. And down to individual leaves, he has actually manufactured fake leaves for the floor of, you know, the cave or something. And so when things are treated disrespectfully, it wounds us and it hurts us because we do take pride in what we do and we work hard to make everything look great and be enjoyable for people. But when maintenance comes back once a week with a broken bird or a, you know, a damaged this or that, it's really disheartening and it kind of it bums us out a little bit, you know. It's an art museum. I'm mean, sure we're a history museum or a science museum or a children's museum, but it's 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 an art museum because even those um, those scientific specimens, those you know, saber tooth cat things like that, those are all pieces of art that someone has created, has sculpted, has mm-hmm. made. And I, I did learn this. There are catalogs where you can order. Certain animal forms. They're so fun. But, <laughs> oh, I love which those I've, catalogs. I've seen before. It's so... Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, walking into the shop, if anyone has an opportunity, walk into the shop because Please. it's another world. Please. Like, you, you get different magazine subscriptions mm-hmm. than anyone else on Earth. It, and it, Where you just look through and, oh, mm-hmm. you want to... 
you want a mountain lion? Mm-hmm. What pose do you want them in? Right. Because you can exactly. buy them all this and this. Exactly. Um, but th- this is this is the Dave Might hour of this podcast right, now. But right. <laughs> in talking about um, the rhinoceros that that he Eep helped taxi yeah. he's like, there's no rhinoceros forms that you can order, so nope. we had to create this this body form out of nothing and that's what i mean by reinventing the wheel sometimes you yeah. know we've got to start from scratch and find a way to do something that's never been done before what what's a project so this is a two-part question what's a project that you've had the most fun or you've most enjoyed working on and then what's a project that you are most proud of wow um I mean, over five years, that's a lot. I mean, yeah. Since, since you started, we've built and opened at least a dozen new exhibits. So that's a lot, not including any temporary exhibitions or any of the featured exhibitions. You know, so I... It's a lot to pick from. I think it'd be hard to say my favorite, to be honest, because Is it like I have... Is like asking someone to pick a favorite child? No, thankfully I only have one child, so I don't have to do that, but... I think there's different aspects of each project that I I like, you know. So so drawing one thing out of a gallery that I really enjoyed or that was really, you know, my favorite time to do this or my favorite time to do that. Um, I enjoyed the transportation gallery a lot because that was a lot of problem solving for mounting a lot of objects Um that there's really no plan to mount. Uh, how do you stand a canoe vertically up against a pillar and make it stay there forever? Or, you know, how do you how do you display something, a bicycle that has to stand on a one-inch piece of pipe? You know, how do you make it look like it's just standing there? Standing, yeah. So I enjoy that a lot. I really enjoyed um, fabricating jack stands for the cars we have out there. So I had to custom make jack stands for the Crosley um, to make it look like it's just sitting on that platform. While it could be, that's going to, over time, put stress on the suspension and you know, just kind of wear the car out. So it's for the car's sake, number one. Um, Number two, to keep it from rolling away on people. Um, But I loved that. And also the Ford up there has the jack stands on it um, that I made. So I enjoyed that a lot. Um, The Nature Gallery as well, it was a lot of firsts for me. Um, Using bendable plywood, um, which sounds like... Ooh, that's like magical. Is, is that like um, you know hockey players? They'll heat they'll heat their sticks and bend them. Yeah, and kind I, of. There's a lot of different ways to bend wood. The old fashioned way is steaming it. Um, yeah, I guess that's more. Or apt. what they call kerf cutting. So essentially, on the back side of the plywood, you would make relief cuts all the way down in the direction that you want to bend the wood. Um, it incredibly time-consuming process thankfully now with modern technology and cnc machines you can buy that stuff pre-made um it's very expensive but it's well worth it for the time-saving effort so if you look in the nature gallery there's quite a few pieces of furniture that are like kidney bean shaped or uh you know odd sort of amorphous shapes there's no right angle in the nature gallery for the most part um which was kind of a long-running joke it's it's made things a lot trickier, but made for a really cool result at the end, you know. So I, I enjoyed that. I always love 
finding new materials and better, quicker ways to do our job. And I'm incredibly grateful and fortunate that we have just about every machine or tool in that shop that I could possibly need to do what I do. Um, that's that's exciting. It's the most well-equipped shop I've ever worked in, and I can do anything with what's down there. Uh, you know what I think would be fun is, and this is, this is going to leap into a, another question, but it would be fun to have staff walk into the shop and just write down what they think different machines are called or what they do. And oh, just that see. would be fun. Because <laughs> I was thinking, because you were saying it's the most well-equipped. I'm like, yeah, there's a ton of really cool stuff in there. I don't know what half of it is. I know that yeah. there's pieces of wood next to certain machines, <laughs> so clearly that cuts wood. <laughs> well, and you'll also see my little love notes all over the mach- all over the shop. Um Please don't cut wood on this machine. <laughs> Seriously. Or the one that says, uh, do not put any dull or broken drill bits in this drawer, or you will find them down your throat. <laughs> love, Erica. They always say love, Erica. I mean, I'm, I'm polite about my threats. Because they're coming from the heart. They do, and it's, you know, it's not just about keeping the shop clean. It's about maintaining safety. Uh, if you're cutting wood on a machine that normally cuts metal... Metal cutting throws sparks. Sparks ignite sawdust. I'd rather not have sawdust in the bottom of a machine that's supposed to cut metal. So I do threaten, but again, I'm polite about my threats, you know, and it's for everyone's good. As someone who would have to explain that fire, (laughs) I appreciate that very much. It's happened before. Um, Not on my watch, but it has happened before down there, and so I'm ultra sensitive to it and it it's an interesting dynamic for people to think about that because sometimes people think of museums as very white glove very uh pristine very clean and then you have this slightly chaotic messy shop right in the same building Mm -hmm. so that those two are um in parallel with each other so it's interesting that we have this building like the geyer center in which we keep so many of our um fossils, historic specimens, uh, scientific specimens, artifacts, all these things. And then we have the shop that is also massive and huge and serves a completely different purpose. <laughs> and it's it, it, those two work in concert with each other. All right, what, what's the object going to be? Okay, well, we're going to go in the shop and we're going to build something to that. Or, hey, what can you build in the shop uh, around this thing? Mm-hmm. We can do this. Okay, well, then we're going to pick a different object to put into that. Right. And that they work... Um, is so in in connection with each other, and to think, um, it, I'm gonna I'm gonna cast about some very some very poor stereotypes, but curators, oh, people with PhDs and and scientists and very educated, mm-hmm. and then you have people working the shop, and these are blue collar you know people who are just grunting it out. I think there is a small fraction of people who could do what you all could do, and when you they, I mean, I I talk with media, I talk with other people, and I'll, I'll point out someone walking by, and I said, oh. That person, you remember this this really awesome, iconic thing in this gallery? Yeah, yeah, That person designed that. That person built that. And they're like, their minds are blown. Thanks. Like, the talent is, the talent's crazy. But all that being said, if there was someone you could trade jobs with for a day or for a week in the museum, Ooh. who would it be? Or what, what role would that be? I feel like I would need to take something further away from 
what I do. You know, I think it'd be fun to run around with the engineers some days, go up into high steel, get into places in this building where I've never been before. I think yeah, that have you would never be been great. in high steel. No, and I keep asking about it, you know, but it's not like I'm just sitting around waiting for stuff to happen. Yeah. You know, it's kind of next time you guys go up, let me know. Yeah. I'll get up there eventually, but I would like that. I would like access to some of the building places I've never seen. But Have I you think... been in the clock? No. Oh, that's cool, too. <sighs> All right. So Write a list. The clock and high steel. You can knock those high out, steel. out no. the same day. But I feel like I, I should pick a job that's really far removed from what I do to get a closer look at how somebody else spends their day. Um I don't know if I could do any of the education programs. That takes a lot of patience for screaming children and things like that. Um, I give those people a whole lot of credit. But you, you could design such a cool STEM program. Oh, I would uh, love you, that. Th this entire yeah, episode's been about um, STEM opportunities, that, yeah. STEM careers, STEM fields that people don't even think about. I think also, and this is big-headed of me, but maybe I'd like to sit and jill or elizabeth's seat for a day yeah and just be aware of the monumental decisions they have to make and the and the umbrella of things that they have to consider every day because we're pretty laser focused down here on just what we're doing and i think the same way we're afraid people forget or are unaware of what we do down there i think we are unaware of or we forget how much what everybody else in this building does to keep the machine running and to keep visitors coming in, to keep education going out. Um, so I'd like to, I'd like to do something completely opposite of what I'm doing. I couldn't sit at a desk for too long, so <laughs> might have to be something I walk around a little bit. But I would. I'd like the opportunity to experience a totally different aspect of the museum administration. I, I'm sure a lot of people would would be happy to. To trade roles I'm not with you. sure they would yeah. want no. to come down where I am. I mean, I, I don't it's loud, it's dirty. Uh. <laughs> I don't think a lot of you would be happy to have someone trade roles with you. And and depends. It's like okay, fine. You can we'll trade roles through the duration of this project, sure. but I don't want you to jump in in the middle of this project and then I need to spend the next week undoing. Fair what you enough. Just did. I'll tell you what. We'll have them put up temp walls. <laughs> And they can paint. That's it. every exhibit's person's least favorite thing to do is temp walls. Is is it putting them up or is it painting them? Which is worse? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. Painting them, no big deal. Putting them up is kind of a bear. I mean, they weigh about 150 pounds each. They're four feet wide by 10 feet tall. And they lock together with a cam lock system. So not only do you have to get them upright, you've got to get it perfectly aligned with the wall next to it to lock it into position. Um, and then, you know, if you've got 40 of those down along exhibit hall, pushing a cart full of temp walls mm -hmm. across a carpeted floor feels like you're trying to push a tank through quicksand you know it's just it's physically taxing and for not a lot to show at the end of the day i don't mind being tired and worn out having welded this awesome steel armature for this shark it's not so much fun being exhausted from standing temp walls all day you know well it, that's another thing that people don't think about or don't realize mm -hmm. um i mean at some point, they they may look at the case, uh, casework or something, and think, um, 
oh, this is like national treasure. I wonder if, (laughs) you know, what I would need to do to infiltrate that. But they don't think, because almost every single featured exhibition, every temporary exhibition is, it involves temp walls. Mm -hmm. It is a a blank box. It's a giant shoe box, Mm -hmm. completely empty. But the way they're laid out, they're laid out in galleries. So you walk through different sections. And the only way you create that maze is with these temp walls. Right. Over what's that? What's that space? Fifteen hundred square feet. It's, it's no. I think it's the big one's ten thousand, right? I can't remember to be honest with you, but I I think you're right. People would be surprised to see a big open shotgun space, especially. I mean, members who have been through thirty temp galleries probably still wouldn't comprehend that. And like you said before, the idea is for them not to see our work. The idea is for them to only see the specimens, the artifacts, what is being featured in the gallery. So if we're doing our job right, they're not looking at the temp walls. They're not looking at the case that the thing's sitting in. They're just looking at the object. If we haven't done our job and, you know, the case looks horrible, that is what they'll see, you know. So it's kind of nice that our work is ignored in a way. That Then we know we've done a good job. But that that gallery first time I saw it like that after being a member here and having gone through plenty of featured exhibits I was shocked to see that oh this is just one big room yeah you know and those those temp walls go up and come down for each one of these exhibits based on what's being shown and how you want to sort of lead people through that experience physically it so from that perspective of, of from a guest perspective, I think everyone who works here has been here as a guest as mm-hmm. well. Um, what What is your earliest memory of the museum center? Well, I was obsessed with this building since I was a child. Did I you mean, grow up in Cincinnati? I did grow okay. up in Cincinnati. Um, my first awareness of it, as a lot of people who were kids at that time my age, was that it looked just like the Hall of Justice, yeah. right? Yay! Um, so that's what made me aware of it. But as I got older and my appreciation for architecture, it's a stunning building. I mean, it really is kind of an Art Deco masterpiece. So in the early 80s, it had been a mall. It's been a lot of things over time. Um, I'm I'm very glad that it was never torn down because it gave us the opportunity not only to house a museum here but the building itself is an exhibit i think something like this would not be built again no the the size the scale of it the style of it the amount of Um, art that was put into it um that was inherently built into it you know and and that's why my earliest memories of the building itself were like as a child driving down 75 all the time seeing it um as a museum trying to think i was in high school i believe a senior in high school and we came um to do some research in the archives library and having never been in the building before just walking in is an overwhelming experience the rotunda is like nothing you've ever seen and that will probably always be imprinted on me just that first walk through the doors and you see the sun shining through and it's an incredible feeling. So the first day I was here as an employee, 
It's like a kid in a candy store. You know, I ran around to see what doors my badge would open up because I just wanted to see every bit of this building. I wanted to get inside its guts and and know about it. And I can't help but visualize the activity and the people. And sometimes when I look in the rotunda, I just sort of see the hustle and bustle of a train station and, and all that. And that excites me. And the fact that the building has been preserved not only to house a museum, but as a piece of artwork itself. I really treasure that. It's not a bad office, that's for sure. No, it, no. <laughs> it's sometimes funny to me that there, there are a hundred ways to get that in any, anyone's office. Um, so onboarding a new employee, oh, yeah. it's I, – I, I remember my first day, um, I walked out of HR. They were you know, we were doing this, you know, all the onboarding session – uh, they said, all right, bathroom break, go out, restroom's over here. Walked out, and it came out of the bathroom, and I was like, oh, no. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and I was like, maybe it's this way. And I walked out the door, and I was like, nope, this is wrong, but the door locked behind oh, me. Oh, yeah. And so my thing is always, if you can find your way back up to the rotunda, you, you're good, because mm-hmm. from there, then you just retrace your steps. You're okay, right. But, um, but then after you've been here a while, you know how to get to your office. So a lot of people, like when you come in, you don't walk through the rotunda. Right. And you kind of, and then you come down or or you go up to the rotunda and you walk through and you're like, oh yeah, this is incredible. Mm-hmm. Or there can be, I mean, it can be insanely busy and you would have no idea because you, I like that. you're walking through the, the hallways and then you walk into the rotunda and you're like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. What is going on mm-hmm. up here? And it's just packed, and you can hear it as soon as you start to walk towards oh, it. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it, it is. It's a massive. It, the building is five hundred thousand square feet, so it's a, very easy to get lost, to navigate your way um, to odd points and, and different ways. And we were we were shooting something, and I said, "Yeah, we'll meet in the the exhibits workshop." And someone goes. Okay, great. And then as we were preparing to do it, they go, I have no idea where I don't that know where is. I'm going. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, here's how you get – where are you right now? I'll go find you. Mm-hmm. Because then trying to explain to someone how to get back to it I is... mean, I've been here for five years, and I still don't know my way around a lot of places. And there, there are places I've never had to go, so I don't know where that is. Um, I was told, you know, at one point I had to turn in my laptop to IT. Great. Where are they? You know, right. no idea. I had to have somebody take me there because their explanation wasn't quite enough for me. You know, I, I've done that thing that you're talking about. You get off the elevator. Oops, wrong floor. What side of the building am I on? You know, I, it's quite convoluted. But I will say this. Um, it gives me the opportunity to get my 10,000 steps in every day. <laughs> There's no easy way to get anywhere in the building. And guaranteed I've got something heavy and awkward and it's got to go to the far end of the building. Yep. There's no way to avoid the public. There's no way to um, just take an elevator. So, yeah, I get my exercise uh, by noon usually. <laughs> and you could walk out any random door in your street level. Yeah. You can come in the front doors and you can go down three floors and, you're and walk out a chair. door in your street level and you're like, what? Mm-hmm. What it's, geography yeah. witchcraft is I, this? I, you know, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of direction, but I definitely get turned around in here a lot. It's um, 
that that's all the beauty of it. Yeah, it's beauty, it kind of is. The beauty of the maze. It kind of is. I like finding rooms I've never seen before. That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to get like, up in high steel one of these days. Richard, if you're listening. <laughs> we'll, make, we'll make that happen for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we'll see if we can pull some strings. Thanks. You might know a guy. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah, all right. Thanks. Either that or we'll find some keys. Right. <laughs> you just jiggle enough handles mm-hmm. and, until you get there. I wouldn't there. know how to get there, though. You just, you just go up. Oh, right. I didn't think of that. Yeah. We'll get you there. Okay. Thank you. Erica, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. Enjoyed talking with you. And we'll get you back on again. We'll see what new experiences you've you've gathered in that time. Awesome. Thanks, Cody. It's been fun. And uh, come on down to the shop anytime. It's an open invitation. Open invitation. Tell them Erica sent you. Yeah, please.